everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am Julia Brown, your Familiar Stranger today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today, I'm talking to Professor Mick Dodson, who is a lawyer and academic and the first director of the National Centre for Indigenous Studies here at ANU, as well as Professor of Law. He is also the director of his own law firm. He recently retired from NCIS, but is continuing with his legal consultancy work and education initiatives around the country, working to raise expectations for Indigenous Australians. As a Yaru man, Mick, alongside his brother, the Senator Pat Dodson, has contributed enormously to improving Indigenous discourse in Australia and around the world. He worked on the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and in 2009 was named Australian of the Year, which is a formal recognition as a role model for Australian identity. Mick was also the Malcolm Fraser and Gough Whitlam Harvard Chair in Australian Studies at Harvard University over 2011-2012. It was a great privilege to talk with Mick and he was generous to give TFS some of his time. He is not an anthropologist, but he has worked with plenty of anthropologists who are instrumental in the practice of Australia's native title, land law. Indeed, Mick's focus on objectivity and impartiality in this interview, when we are talking about anthropologists, points to the deep entanglement of anthropology, in Australia anyway, with present-day politics and legal struggles. Some anthropologists might not be instinctively aware of these legal and ethical implications of their work. So his views are particularly valuable for those doing fieldwork with Indigenous communities. I am not an Indigenous person, nor do I consider myself well-informed when it comes to Indigenous issues in Australia. But it would be hard for any Australian to deny the injustices faced by Indigenous people. Poor health outcomes, education disparities, world-high incarceration rates, lack of constitutional recognition. The recent Uluru Statement from the Heart, which Mick and I discuss, calls this, to quote, the torment of our powerlessness. However, the demands in the Uluru Statement from the Heart for recognition, sovereignty and a rightful place in their own country also highlight the dynamic and powerful Indigenous movement taking shape with the help of leaders like Mick. This interview was intended to open up the conversation about some of these issues that are so deeply problematic yet apparently easy for many non-Indigenous Australians to shrink away from. The show notes to this episode include a lot more information on topics our non-Australian listeners might not have heard about, such as the Northern Territory intervention, the Stolen Generations, the Apology and the Native Title Settlement. In this discussion with Mick, I talk about these issues along with education and the importance of valuing difference, such as differences in culture and language. We talk about living with everyday racism, practicing self-determination when the laws and society fail you, and the meaning of health. So here it is, my conversation with Professor Mick Dodson. We should probably begin with your words of your career trajectory. My career trajectory? Oh, God. Well, I was orphaned when I was... um, My dad died when I was nine, and my mum died when I was ten, and I went and lived with relatives. 
and shortly after, about two years and a bit after my parents died, I went to boarding school in Victoria. I spent six years at boarding school and I went straight to boarding school to uni. I did a law degree and then I spent five years working with Aboriginal Legal Aid in Victoria. And then I went to the Melbourne Bar, the Victorian Bar. Then I went to work as Senior Legal Advisor at Northern Land Council. I was there for ten years and I finished up as the CEO. Then um, got appointed to the Social Justice Commission with the Human Rights Commission. And then after that I got the job as Chair of Indigenous Studies at ANU and Professorial Chair in Indigenous Studies. And I've been at ANU for about 20 years until March this year when I retired. And I'm now in an emeritus faculty, Regulation and Governance Network. It's full of lawyers, that place. <laughs> Going back to my flock. <laughs> <laughs> and how does that feel? <laughs> well, it's, it's nice to... You know, not have all that supervisory and administrative and running budgets burden after 20 years and uh, be able to sit back and think a bit. And yet I'm actually trying to get back into teaching law, actually. But um, I've been away from the law for a long time. Did you always know that you wanted to go into law? No, no, it was an accident. (laughs) (laughs) It often is, isn't it? No, it was. At, uh, I mean, I was living next to a lawyer when I finished year twelve, and and I applied for law, and I got into Monash Law School. And were you the first Indigenous person to graduate from Monash? Yeah, yeah. First, first law graduate. I don't know if I was the first ever graduate. Well, I didn't think much of it. You know, I mean, I was a, aware of my identity, but it wasn't something I was well, something I had to defend most of the time, particularly at boarding school. So were you quite studious at school then? No, no. Oh, I was I was good at school. I got slack at uni. You know, cause I was at boarding school and it was very disciplined. Your life was governed by a bell. <laughs> and was that quite different to your Well, experience? university was just totally different. Mm. You're free. There's no one telling you. And that year I failed. I thought, oh, God, I've got a lot of free time here. I'll just <laughs> have a good time. When the free time really wasn't free time, it should be working, studying. <laughs> uh, but eventually I got through. How have those experiences informed your values around education, which I know you're really passionate about, in terms of understanding what it means to feel motivated to learn? An education should provide a space where um, you're valued and your background's valued. But you know, your capacity to function requires at least that you can read and write and count. I know people who get by, but in lots of ways they're wasted potential. But uh, as I said, the, the, you know, you have to have a system that honours the cultural inheritance and difference of everybody, not just the Aboriginal kids in the class, but, but the kids who... Uh, children of migrants or refugees or whoever and whatever the colour of their skin, the tilt of their accent or what have you, that that all should be honoured and celebrated because diversity is such a wonderful thing for enhancing and enriching mm. society, I think. But, I, you know, the one reward my kids is uh, I, they had to go to school. <laughs> it was not, I didn't push them into sport or activities or whatever, they had a 
choice about what they could and couldn't do recreationally. And um, I would try to support whatever they wanted to do, but there was no debate about school. You had to go to school, unless you were really sick. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, sadly my son died, but he was at university when he died, but um, just about to graduate. And my two daughters are university graduates. I'm very proud of them. I can imagine. So you're a Yaru man, have I pronounced that? Yaru. Yaru, sorry, yeah. from Broome. Yeah. And what would you say it means to be a Yaru man? Well, it's a powerful identity for me, you know. I love people asking me, uh, <laughs> so I'm a Yaru man from Broome. <laughs> and knowing my family history pretty well, there are, there are a lot of things I don't know about it and that's still in the mind of my older sisters and older brothers. <laughs> I don't get back to Broome that often. But I've been there twice this year, which is really oh, great. almost a miracle. <laughs> and I hope to get back there before Christmas. But it's good to go back and catch up with family. And You know, it's a wonderful place. And we're, we've got, I think, pretty good leadership and we're making the best of our native title settlement. I think the future look bright, looks bright for Yaru. I mean, we like any other group of people, whether they're Aboriginal or not. Uh, in any community of people, mm. there's differences. <laughs> We're not exempt from that. Has your identity grown stronger, do you think, over the years? Oh, or? certainly, yeah. yeah. And I'm, you know, getting involved in more and more of the Yaru cultural activities when I can get home. <laughs> Gradually learning the Yaru vocab. <laughs> I'm getting better at pronunciation. But it's wonderful I can do that you know, because it, there's a huge revival of language going on around the country. But we, we, had a, you know, we had quite a considerable number of fluent speakers to start with, so that helps. And we, we made language and culture central to our native title settlement. So, you know, the schools uh, in Broome are teaching Yaru and there's night classes for adults. Our commercial corporation has insisted that anybody who works there has a at least an understanding of uh, in the Yaru language of Yaru uh, protocols and greetings and the rest of it. <laughs> uh, and a lot of the non-Yaru people, or some of them, um, actually become fully fluent in the language, which is good. That's really great to hear because one of my questions was going to be about how when you were nominated Australian of the Year in 2009, your efforts were largely geared towards education and then that same year in the Northern Territory, multilingual efforts in schools were peeled back and that must have been quite disheartening. One of the major problems with Indigenous education is that Non-Indigenous educationists and educators um, don't put little value in the importance of language or just throw their hands up and say it's all too hard. And so, you know, you, you get situations where kids and babies are learning in their language and rock up the school at four and a half, five, and someone up the front of the classroom is talking to him in the foreign language. 
they switch off. They turn up there because the state says they have to. And then when they don't turn up, the state takes punitive measures to punish the parents, which in turn punishes the kids. Did you ever experience that, even going back as far as No, no, I experienced the bigotry and racism and prejudice and stuff like that. But, you know, I was a competent English speaker when I went to school, when I first went to school. The prejudice and discrimination is is experienced in different ways by people. But it's still the same old, same old. I still have the odd discriminatory encounter with some ignorant bigot. Can you give me an example? When you're in a shop and there's a group of people there and you're standing there and you're clearly the next customer and they, they go and serve someone else. <laughs> really? Yeah, that still happens to me. I say something, usually. And do you... I usually say, oh, look, sorry, I was here before him, but he seems to be in more of a hurry. You can serve him first. I'm glad that you say something. I don't always. And I think we, we all, particularly men, we should, but we don't always call people out. I'm getting better at it. And I feel very ashamed and diminished, I think, when I don't do it. And I angst about it. It's more, and particularly men, uh, groups of men behaving in, in a very discriminatory and disparaging way about women. We don't, uh, we men don't talk up enough about that because we're brought up in that. And that's being one of the boys has sort of become some sort of sick badge of honour. But it's no longer acceptable in any society. No, I mean, you've hit on one of the most difficult challenges of our time, I think. I mean, there's so much... it's it's a difficult challenge for all societies, I think. Yes, exactly. It's not just the broader Australian society, but our communities within that, including... Mm. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander societies and for for the entire life of humanity it's been a problem. So it's an example of a cultural value that has to change but it's it's very difficult when it's entangled in so many other ways of being. I, I know you don't like to be seen as a representative of Indigenous peoples, but sometimes you would be perceived that way with mm. your leadership. What's that like, given that history of structural violence? Does that feel quite surreal sometimes, speaking up about these things? Yeah, well, you know, we don't look back enough to go forward, <laughs> I think. We need to look in the rear view mirror every day. <laughs> I mean, I have a view about these things. I don't say that they're representative views. They're not the views of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander society. I'm not a Torres Strait Islander for a start with, and I don't ever claim to be representing Aboriginal people, um, nor Torres Strait Islanders. Uh, But I'm a big mouth, I guess. Well, you're you're in a position of power where people will listen. Yeah, but I'm, in the end, expressing the opinions of Mick Dodds and nobody else. Well, as a sort of political, social, cultural, economic struggle. <laughs> there's varying views and there's a diversity of opinions about things. I don't, but I think we all concede that things aren't good and we need to do something about it. And just talking about education earlier, you know, where have we gone in Indigenous education in 230 years of colonisation? Not very far would be my, mm-hmm. my view. And what, what has happened is recent and reluctant 
um, particularly reluctant government support for to help people get through. You know, the, most New South Wales country state schools, is my understanding, and many of the Catholic schools in the Catholic education system. Um, so regardless of whether there are Indigenous kids or yeah, not? Yeah, they offer classes in the local lang- language. Fantastic. Um, at least some rudimentary understanding of the local language. And I think that's necessary yeah. for us to build understanding and respect and acceptance and to value that. These languages are ancient. <laughs> These are probably the oldest languages in the world. <laughs> There's something wrong about your values if you don't think that that heritage is, is of any worth. You know? And you know, once you lose a language, it's near impossible to get it back. It's mm. gone forever. It, it'll be snippets of it in some long ago bit of research some junior anthropologist did, <laughs> or junior linguist. <laughs> Speaking of anthropology, now I don't have a background in Indigenous studies, but as an anthropologist who does work uh, in the area of social inequities in Western culture, I am becoming more and more aware of the need for me to learn more about the Australian Indigenous context and the politics around it and I don't know where to begin and I feel ashamed of this. Anthropology or anthropologists can be as toxic as anybody studying culture from the outside in and I'm wondering if you can describe truthfully what anthropologists have and have not done that is constructive for understanding Indigenous cultures? What can we do better? Mm, That's a big question. You know, uh, most anthropologists I know, and I'm married to one, are good people who mean well. I think the discipline generally has been effective and impartial, particularly in recent decades. I mean, you go back up to 100 years ago and... There are awful things happening, totally immoral, unethical things happening. Uh, It's not that long ago that people collected human remains, stuck them in a museum, measured skulls, all sorts of things. Um, Anthropology was never that far away from that practice, those practices. The thing that troubles me about anthropologists is that there's a level of preciousness that seems to afflict the discipline. When you, you say... You know, it, well, it's... it's yeah, sorry, you asked. No, no, I was just going to clarify when you say preciousness. Can we unpack that? Yeah, bit? well, uh, you know, I'm the expert. Uh, you've got to go through mm. me. You know, these are my people. There's some belief that somehow because you work with these people, you, even if you've learnt the language, you understand their... Uh, culture and customs and um, that you somehow own them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you're the expert with respect to these people and you deny their own agency in engaging with the rest of the world, whoever they may be. I think the, the great thing that's happened in research of any sort, but particularly in anthropology, is the ethical clearance processes these days. 
And I'm, I'm horrified sometimes listening to people talk about the so-called the good old days in the past where uh, you didn't have to worry about these. Now the emphasis the other way. You know. What are you going to give back? What are you going to leave? How are you going to be impartial, independent? That's where preciousness gets in the way. And it's still evolving, you know, relationships with researchers and Aboriginal people. Um, We actually have to find sign full of legal binding agreements these days to to get access to the community. So when it comes to... The expeditions. The expeditions. (laughs) How can anthropologists know that they're dignifying their participants enough? Should there be a consultation process through the course of writing up that work? I, I know this is something that I tried to do. Maybe you should select people who study anthropology with greater scrutiny. You know. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think that some people are singularly unsuited to being anthropologists. You know, not just anybody can become a doctor. If you become too familiar, you lose your objectivity and your impartiality. That's what troubles me. You know, going native ought to be frowned upon. <laughs> no, you can understand it, but don't try and become it. <laughs> so zooming back out to what's been going on in Australia more broadly, the last decade or so has seen a lot of setbacks as well as progress. And I think one thing that is poorly misunderstood in the wider discourse is what happened with the Northern Territory intervention in 2007. And when you look at the timeline, the Northern Territory intervention started in 2007. There was the apology to stolen generations the following year in 2008 and there's a bit of a juxtaposition going on because it seems that the anti-intervention might require another apology further into the future but there's a lot of misunderstanding I think about what was so hurtful about what happened and what continues to play out with those interventionist efforts and I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit about how did that happen at the same time as this apology well, was Well, there was happening? a change of government and the former Prime Minister, John Howard, who, who instigated the intervention, flatly refused to apologise. I mean, what happened to Aboriginal society uh, as a result of colonisation was deplorable and horrible and devastating. You know? Thousands and thousands of people were slaughtered. <laughs> It was a genocide. You know, people came here and purported to take possession of the country without the consent of the people who owned the bloody place, you know. And he's got the hide to say, oh, well, generally history will reflect well on uh, on us, you know, that the culture wars, that so-called culture wars, mm. are a bloody disgrace. You know? you know, in the 21st century, to think something like the intervention is needed just says it all. It says how little we've learnt, how little we understand, how far we haven't got as a nation. It's a disgraceful thing to do. 
It's a shameful thing to do. And you're right, one day some politician will have the courage to apologise and give some redress. We've had no redress for the original theft of the country, the ongoing damage that colonisation does. You know, the colonial project's not over. It's ongoing for us. And the intervention's just another more recent example of how brutality is preferred over humanity and and engagement. You know, it's the, it's the worst aspects of the whole Protection Acts, where people's lives were totally bloody controlled by some white administrator working in the bureaucracy. And you know, we need all to grow up and accept our history. You know, the, the black armband is going to be worn until there's reason to take it off, and we haven't given as a nation any reason to take it off. And it's not about you know, blaming the present generation. But we can blame if they refuse to accept this history. You know, there's no excuse to not know this history. And, and the, the reaction to it is, oh, we've got to look to the future. No, no you don't. You know, we go back to that rear vision mirror. You're not going to get anywhere if you don't look in the rear vision mirror. You know? And this is reminding me of your 1994 Wentworth lecture that you gave. You wrote that paper to really set out the history um, in terms of you illuminated how Indigenous Australians were once legally defined by their bloodlines and how in the 1970s this became a UN human rights issue in regard to self-determination, which is, you describe, the right of a people to determine its political status and to pursue its own economic, social and cultural development. Yet you also pointed out here nearly 25 years ago now something that uh, I'm afraid is still echoing into the present. To quote you again, neither moral righteousness nor legal guarantee is sufficient to prevent the actions and expressions of a system of bigotry and oppression. And then you eloquently describe, though, uh, how the past cannot be limiting because we are always transforming it. In all expressions of our Aboriginality, we repossess our past and ourselves and of Aboriginal past roots, you conclude, they are the roots of survival, but not of constriction. They are the roots from which all growth is possible. They are the roots that protected our end from the beginning. Can we talk a little bit more about self-determination as a human right and linking it back with that reclaiming of past and the empowerment that can come from that process? No, the right, uh, right to self-determination is Article 3 of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It's the first article of the two major human rights covenants. When you look at self-determination, I don't think you can separate it from the concept of social justice. In its essence, self-determination... Uh, is having control of your destiny <laughs> as a group. It's a right of peoples. It's not a right of an individual. No. Yes. That's a really important distinction. Yeah. yeah. It's a collective right. And as you pointed out, it it's a right to determine your political status uh, and it's a right to determine how you will pursue your social, economic and cultural development. Coupled with social justice, it means that 
You as a group are in control of the decisions that most affect not just your daily lives, but what happens to you as a group into the future. And, and it's, it, it means, from a social justice perspective, of what faces you every day when you wake up. You know, do you have adequate shelter for you and your family? Do you live in cooler parts of the country? Do you, you know, can you afford to have heating? Can you put breakfast on the table for your kids? Can you send them to a school that values who they are and their mm. cultural, culture and linguistic traditions, their religious and spiritual traditions? No, are they valued by not just the school your kids go to but the society in which you live? You know? Can you get a decent job? Where you're free of discrimination, bigotry and prejudice. No, you can go about your work and make a contribution. Not just to the broader society and to the economy, but to your family. No. These are simple practical matters about social justice and self-determination. But you know, the the people oughtn't be feared feared of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander self-determination. I mean at its zenith from a political status point of view. It ought to be self-government, and it will come to the Torres Straits. You know, Aboriginal people are already politically organised. We do it through through corporations law. <laughs> we set up representative bodies to look after our business. It's not the full Monty so far as self-determination is concerned, uh, but it's part of the journey to there saying, well, we make the decisions around here about what happens in our lives and what happens to our kids and our families and our society, that's our business. We're in control of that. We're making the decisions and you don't need to intervene. And in fact, you shouldn't intervene. In fact, we want intervention prohibited. <laughs> Let us make our own mistakes, thank you, and learn from them. And we'll get better and better at it if you just get out of the road and let us do it. So... Linking this in with constitutional reform and the recent Uluru Statement from the Heart that was unfortunately uh, knocked back by the Turnbull government recently. However, there was the uh, treaty framework passed in Victoria this month. We're recording this at the end of June. The Uluru Statement from the Heart I don't think a lot of Australians wildly knew about. I'm not sure... Um, how passionate you feel about this in particular and how critical you think it is as part of this reconciliation process? Yeah, the way politics is played in this country is, and it's probably the same worldwide, <laughs> you frame things to suit your political objectives and... It just has a hint, the framing just has a hint of plausibility about it. And that's what's happened with the Uluru Statement. It's been framed in a negative way and dismissed as not in the national interest. I don't know whether the Prime Minister read it carefully. I've read it, you know, 50 times. It's not a big ask. And no, it's I not long. Know, it's page, yeah. yeah. I have my problems with it. but And it, the response is really mean-spirited, and unfair, unjust, and the perpetuation of the colonial project, really. We'll decide what's best for you blackfellas because uh, we have the power and whatever you dish up, uh, we can say yes or no to. They shut us off at every 
point of development because the 97% interest, whatever that is, always prevails. There's an extraordinary disconnect with white Australians and in terms of the knowledge and the... Well, this is a case in point. You mentioned the Constitution. Mm. People who are first told about subsection 26 and section 25 of the Australian Constitution are shocked. Subsection 26 of section 51 allows the Parliament to pass laws that can be racially discriminatory. And they have. Since 1967, they have at least five times used that power to discriminate against Australia's Indigenous people and only Australia's Indigenous people. The intervention on Marshall Island, the Native Title Act. They do it, they, how they do it in the Native Title Act is to prohibit access to the Racial Discrimination Act to Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders with Native Title interests. Uh, over transactions that happen on those lands without their consent. It's a bit more complex than that, but that's the best way I can think of explaining it at the moment. And Section section 25 contemplates the disenfranchisement of members of a, a race, whatever race is. It's a pretty defunct term these days and useless in lots of respects. But people can be banned from voting in any state on the basis of their race. Those two sections are in our constitution in the 21st century. They've been there for 117 years. And what is what possible justifications are used? They want to be racist. They want to be able to use racial discrimination to discriminate against people. There is, and this is kind of building on your 1994 paper, um, the discourse of deficit that is often attached to Aboriginality. And I'm sure anthropologists unwittingly contribute to that discourse as well. What can we do about that? Well, we've got to call it out to start with. You know. mm. But it's not always recognisable. <laughs> Sometimes it, it's subtle and almost hidden. Having spent a bit of time in England for my field work and then I went to America at the end of last year, it really stood out to me how much more explicit the racism was over there compared to here. I wonder if part of the issue in Australia is that we don't recognise it to call it out. People who don't um, have to live with racism every day don't recognise it, I don't think. They really don't see it. Or they live in such a narrow circle of friends and they're exposed to other cultures and belief systems and languages and in some sort of twist of mind, feel sorry for them. Mm. And it's a mindset amongst politicians, amongst bureaucrats, amongst broader society that somehow you're a lesser human being and you need our help, in inverted commas. We're human beings with the same potential as any other human being. And do you think that there is a problem then with attaching this idea of Indigenous people being special along the lines of not deficit but having to be looked after in a certain way because that's another unintentionally racist discourse that oh, they treat, I've you know, experienced? They, they, they treat us like children. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the um, wash-up. And it doesn't happen just to Indigenous people, you know. No. I, I, I see some behaviour at this university which is deplorable. 
where the way in which senior academics, for example, treat junior academics. And that's a sort of different sort of deficit. Not being taken as competent enough or on their own merit or what, what is it? Yeah, all of the above. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Anxiety does seem to be on the rise yeah. and the suicide rate is twice the rate amongst Indigenous Australians yeah. than it is amongst the general population. Yeah, I haven't worked in that area much but I've, I've seen some of the work that's being done. There is a connection between cultural and identity confusion, I think. Mm. Disconnects. Yes. Disconnect with culture, particularly younger people. Young people not fully understanding where they fit in the whole scheme of things. Connecting the young with the broader family, clan, nation, universe Mm. uh, has broken down. Um, through colonisation and dispossession because people lose connection with country country Mm. and people. It's always striking to me how when these things manifest in health conditions, how the emphasis is never on social factors or social well, integration. You, the first reaction is to honour Big Pharma and give you a pill. Recently um, it's come out that heart health is a particularly big concern insofar as inequality gaps in Australia between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. And there's a lot of emphasis on intervention, health education, and so forth, if not uh, providing drugs to help with these things. And I just think it's so much more complicated and potentially patronising to assume that people have certain health behaviours because they don't know otherwise. You know, the Arab people, we have a a notion of lian, which is feeling of well-being, I guess, probably best describes it, but it's physical, spiritual, economic, intellectual, sorry, not economic, but a feeling of well-being, contentment, and you have good lian and bad lian. <laughs> when did you last feel and good lian? Every time I go to brew. <laughs> <laughs> well, that says so much, doesn't yeah. it? I remember there was a there was a conference in Darwin and they about Indigenous health and they separated the white fellas from the black fellas and put them in separate rooms and said, you've got 20 minutes to come back and tell us what are the five big health issues for Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory. The white fellas came back and said, heart disease, liver disease, kidney disease, cancer, diabetes... The blackfellas came back and said, family, land rights, language, culture, identity. (laughs) Such a huge chasm of thinking about well-being and health. The message is health is not just a physical condition, it's also a spiritual and intellectual and cultural condition. I'm wary of time, but one last question, which is what are you most proud of in terms of the 
progress that has been made towards adequate reconciliation in Australia. Yeah, I accept progress has been made and I'm happy about that, but we've got more work to do. But I think, you know, not because one of them is my my brother, but the increasing number of uh, elected Aboriginal representatives in all mainstream parliaments and, and local government, I think that's a good thing. But we should never accept that as our representation, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, and I resent people saying, oh, you know, you've got people in the House of Representatives in the Senate, for example, federally. They're there to represent them. No, they're not. They're there to represent their electorates. You know, the electorates voted them in. They're looking after their interests. You know. And what we're talking about uh, with the Uluru Statement is something quite different to that. It's actually an Aboriginal voice chosen by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. It's an Indigenous voice that we, as an act of self-determination, say, well, these are the people we want to talk to you about our business. Not who you, your constituency selects and you ordain as our representatives. They're not. We didn't choose them. They're good people, all of them. They're working very hard and they stand up for Aboriginal interests. Uh, but in the end, they're elected by a constituency that's overwhelmingly non-Aboriginal or non-Torres Strait Islander. We want us as a constituency to choose our own representatives to speak to parliaments, not just the federal parliament, state and territory parliaments. Do you see that happening in your lifetime? Oh, it's going to happen. I don't know about my lifetime, it's going to happen because there's greater acceptance that something ought to be done about the original sin, which is, you know, the invasion of Australia and the dispossession of the peoples who own the place. Thank you so much, Mick. I really appreciate your time. You've given me and hopefully listeners a lot to keep reflecting on and... I think the Uluru Statement from the Heart is perhaps the most recent example of something people can engage in to begin to understand the importance of this stuff. The important word in what you just said is engage. Engage, yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. Galia. Galia. I'm done. <laughs> That was it, me and Professor Mick Dodson. Today's episode was produced by me, Julia Brown, with help from the other familiar strangers, Jodie Lee Tremberth, Simon Theobald, and our executive producer is Ian Pollock. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet us at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabrow. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant and Maud Rowe. Thanks so much for listening. See you in two weeks. And until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>